This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. gender-affirming care. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. In 1868, Magnus Hirschfeld was born in Poland to an Ashkenazi Jewish family. His father was a prominent physician, inspiring him to study medicine as well. He moved to Germany and earned his medical degree in 1892. He quickly became interested in the study of sexuality and gender, where he became a prominent world leader and pioneer. He introduced the then novel concept that sexual orientation and gender identity could be innate. Additionally, he promoted the idea that a continuum of gender identities could exist and that gender identity is independent from sexual orientation. Hirschfeld cared for numerous LGBTQ patients over his lifetime. He even co-founded the Scientific Humanitarian Committee advocating for decriminalization of sexuality, reducing prejudice, raising awareness, and garnering political support for his cause. For example, he worked with Berlin police to create passes for gender non-conforming individuals to protect them from police harassment and arrest. In 1919, he established and opened the Institute for Sexual Science in Berlin, the first of its kind. The Institute was not only a place of research on sexual health, but also advocacy, training, and even featured a museum open to the public. Hirschfeld even lived at the Institute. He and his colleagues developed some of the earliest gender-affirming surgeries there. Unfortunately, neither Hirschfeld nor his ideas or Jewish heritage were welcomed by the Nazi regime. And in 1933, the Nazis ransacked and destroyed the Institute, and Hirschfeld subsequently fled Germany. He died a few years later in France. 
But today, Hirschfield's legacy lives on through his publication and his ideas. Gender-affirming care has come a long, long way in the past century. Here to teach us more about gender-affirming care are two of Ohio State University's experts. I am pleased to introduce Dr. Andrew Keister, Assistant Professor of the Department of Family and Community Medicine, and Dr. Melissa Davis, Assistant Professor of Family and Community Medicine. Welcome to MedNet. Thank you. Thanks. True. what are your pronouns, and how did you become interested in caring for transgender patients? Thanks for having us here. Uh, I use he and him pronouns, and right at the end of medical school, as I was about to start residency, I had a, um, there was a community event where someone uh, stood up and said, you know, I'm a, a transgender person, and I don't know where to go to get care. I don't know what to do, what to ask for. You know, all of my friends have doctors and know what to do, right, if your stomach hurts or, or if you break your arm. But I'm a trans-identified individual, and I don't know what to do. I'm lost. I need help. And I thought, gosh, well, we can do better and we should do better for these patients. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Melissa, what are your pronouns, and how did you become interested in this population? So my pronouns are she, her, um, and I became interested in this population because there was one patient that landed on my schedule by mistake when I was a new attending. Um, and so I had been looking forward to getting my 20 minutes back um, because, you know, primary care, we run a little behind. <laughs> um, but then my medical assistant came to me and said, you know, Dr. Davis, this patient is upset. They're crying. They drove two hours to get here. Um, they waited, you know, six months for care. Um, is there anything you can do? Mm -hmm. um, so, in getting to know this patient and using guidance from experts to start prescribing hormones to this patient, then I really realized what a rewarding experience it is to care for transgender people. Okay. And Melissa, how would you just explain gender-affirming care to someone who's uninitiated? So it's really difficult to, um, you know, condense it down because it's such a huge continuum of care and it encompasses, you know, from the time the patient walks in the office and they meet our front desk staff who is going to treat them respectfully and use the correct name and pronouns to when they see the medical assistants are, you know, compassionate and kind and the physician or the provider provides the right care at the right time. Um, in, in their primary care office, and it also includes transition-related care uh, such as hormone therapy and gender-affirming surgeries that help really um, affirm the patient's identity and meet them where they are. Great. And Drew, is there a best practice way of addressing or greeting a patient and being respectful of their gender? Absolutely. I always uh, advise people to ask a simple question. What is your name? Right, so often we walk into a patient's room and say, oh, are you Mr. Smith or are you Miss Johnson? Already we've affixed a name, a title, um, to a person that may not apply. And by giving them the open-ended question, what is your name, giving them a space to identify, um, and then following up by asking what pronouns they use, um, is a great place to start. That's great advice, perfect. We'll get started with the meat of our program in just a moment. As a reminder to our audience, you can send us any questions you have using the link on the bottom right-hand corner of our webcast. All of our webcasts are offered for CME credit and ABIM MOC points. You can find that information on our website at ccme.edu. 
www.osu.edu. The podcast version of our program is available by searching for MedNet 21 CME on your podcast app. Drew, let's get started. All right. Thanks, Jingjing. Uh, so today we're going to talk about a few things. So I'll talk about the first uh, few points here and then turn it over to my colleague Melissa to talk more about hormone therapy and surgery. But let's talk a little bit about what it means uh, when we use the term transgender or gender diverse or gender nonconforming. There's a lot of words um, and a lot of acronyms that you may hear. Let's start with the case. Uh, so there's an individual who uh, identifies as a man but were assigned female at birth. History of anxiety and bipolar who presented uh, to our hospital as a transfer for Tylenol overdose. Uh, the parents said, gosh, our child has been much more depressed recently. They've had um, a lot of menstrual spotting despite the depo shots we're getting for them to prevent bleeding. Um, and we found a receipt for four bottles of Tylenol um, and we're worried they may have overdosed. They've done something similar before. Um, turns out their Tylenol level was quite elevated. They received the antidote and transferred uh, to us for further care. Uh, this individual has a history, as I said, of uh, anxiety, bipolar, anorexia, as well as hypothyroidism, probably from lithium use. Uh, medications, uh, you can see here. And social history, um, always important, um, a, a good topic for our uh, trans patients to really spend a good amount of time taking a good social history. Um, in this individual, um, quite uh, efficiently for us, uh, not smoking, not using any alcohol, no drug use, and no recent sexual activity, although these would be points I would uh, spend time uh, really delving into for any of our patients. Uh, no family history. Um, and then when we talked to the mother about um, the social and home environment, the mother very defensively said, well, I support my child. Uh, when we had asked about their gender identity, um, meaning I, I love my child, but I don't love this aspect of them. Um, and then this uh, patient was not interested in having children in the inpatient environment, not important or relevant, but certainly, uh, as we'll see, and Melissa will talk about fertility, uh, discussions are absolutely important if we're going to talk about hormone therapy. So fortunately, the patient did well. There was no sign of acute liver injury. The patient moved over to our psych hospital for further care, and they were eventually referred um, to our outpatient clinic. Now, the hospital course was medically uncomplicated, but in the hospital, the patient said, wow, I encountered a lot of things I didn't expect. Um, if you think about all the individuals that interact with the patient in the hospital, from your physician to your nurses to your physical and occupational therapist or your uh, person bringing the meal trays, your registration staff, uh, and then learners at every level. There are so many interactions uh, with people and so many opportunities uh, to mess up and to misgender uh, and uh, misname a patient, but also a lot of opportunities to do well. Uh, and so Ultimately, what was going on with this patient? Yes, it was a Tylenol overdose uh, that was intentional um, because of uncontrolled bipolar depression. But at the root of it uh, was this patient's uh, gender dysphoria. And so that's what we'll talk about. The ICD-10 uh, says gender dysphoria and has quite a list uh, of criteria. I'm not going to go through these exactly, but ultimately, um, gender dysphoria or being a trans person means you have this incongruence or difference. 
between your experienced or expressed gender and the gender that's assigned to you or the uh, sex you're assigned at birth. And this difference, um, according to the DSM here, uh, lasts for at least six months and then is manifested by any of the following bulleted points. I will also mention at the very bottom here, it says the condition is associated with clinically significant distress or impairment. Um, that is a, a point of contention, right? Because a transgender person does not have to be distressed or impaired. Um, certainly to get the, the moniker dysphoria, yes, that, that's what it means, but does a uh, transgender person whose you know, identity is trans, do they have to be distressed in order to receive access to care? And the answer is no. Um, so we'll move on and look at um, some terminology. So we hear the acronym LGBT or LGBTQ, that stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. Uh, gay and lesbian, uh, terms that refer to people who um, have or desire to have intimate uh, relationships with individuals of the same gender, bisexual, um, in desire relationships uh, or intimacy with individuals of either the same or a different gender, and asexual uh, refers to no sexual desire, which is different from the choice to remain celibate. When we look at uh, these terms, uh, sex, gender identity, and gender expression, they are all different, and we're going to look at a cartoon on the next slide that helps, I think, clarify. Uh, sex is what's assigned to you at birth. Um, you know, based on an assessment of anything from chromosomes to uh, genitalia. Your gender, which is uh, composed of both gender identity and gender expression, um, is um, your internal sense of gender. So when you think um, about yourself when you wake up in the morning, uh, do you think of yourself as a man? Do you think of yourself as a woman? Um, you know, before you look in the mirror and see what biology you have, who are you in your mind, in your headspace, um, refers to gender identity. And then gender expression is how you portray that to the world um, through your dress, hairstyle, and mannerisms. So here's the gender unicorn. And we have a bunch of um, spectrums here where um, you can see sex assigned at birth in the middle, um, essentially what is between your legs, so to speak, um, which is different from who you give your heart to, which is um, who you're physically attracted to or emotionally attracted to, and you can see um, that you could essentially take that as a little scale and slide each line over um, to the right or to the left and kind of plot your um, physical attraction, your emotional attraction to men or women or other um, uniquely for each person, and the same is true for gender identity and gender expression. Um, each person has kind of a unique profile, and yes, the uh, usual um, for, say, someone who is assigned female at birth is that their gender identity is um, uh, female and their gender expression is feminine, um, uh, but that's not always the case, right? And, and that's uh, part of why we're here talking to you today. So we use some terms. Um, I'll actually start by using a term that's not on here, which is cisgender. Um, and cisgender, cis means the same. And so if your gender um, is the same as the sex you're assigned at birth, uh, you are cisgender. And that applies to most people. Um, and then our trans patients are people who have a gender identity that differs from the sex they were assigned at birth. 
we use it as an umbrella term. Uh, and so a transgender man or a trans man um, is someone who has a male gender identity uh, and maybe they were born female but identify as a man and so they're a trans man. And the opposite would be true for a trans woman, uh, assigned male at birth but identifies as a woman, so a, a trans woman would be the term that we would use. Um, and then, uh, of course, here a non-transgender person is a cisgender individual uh, because we have words and names for everything. Uh, other uh, less common terms that you may hear or see um, that get a little confusing. We have the term gender non-conforming, which is a person who uh, maybe their gender identity differs from uh, the sex that they were assigned at birth, but they're a little more complex. Maybe it shifts or changes it, or is fluid um, or, or really isn't there isn't a word for how they feel in terms of their gender. Uh, gender queer or queer is another term that we may use. Uh, and similarly, non-binary um, can also apply. Different regions of the country uh, and different groups of people will use terms uh, separately or interchangeably. Uh, and so really talking to your patients and following their lead if they identify as any of those um, is gonna be important. When we talk about trans patients, um, a, a lot of times they're going to intersect with the medical community as part of their transition um, and their transition to help bring their body more in line with their um, internal gender. And so trans patients may present in a variety of ways. Uh, as Melissa will talk about, some will medically or surgically alter their body to affirm their gender identity. Uh, some are going to change their hair or dress. Some may make absolutely no changes to their appearance at all and, and will change uh, their name and pronouns and, and that social uh, support and recognitions from others is all that they need or want to feel affirmed. And certainly some may choose to do all of the above. Um, I will point out again sexual orientation and gender identity are separate concepts um, and a trans person might consider themselves as uh, straight or a part of the gay community or, or neither. So why are we talking about trans patients today? And, and so there's a study that I'll highlight from 2015 uh, of a lot of patients um, from a lot of uh, regions of the country that focus not just on healthcare, although we will focus on that in a bit. So from a non-health standpoint, uh, we know that trans people face disparities and discrimination in the workplace uh, when it comes to housing, when it comes to living in poverty, uh, and, and homelessness. We know um, that uh, when we flip over to the healthcare findings, that one third of patients who saw a healthcare provider had a negative experience. Almost one fourth said that they went without seeing their doctor because they were scared of being mistreated or misgendered. Um, on a previous iteration of the survey, one in five said they had been turned away by a healthcare provider because of their gender identity essentially saying, oh, it burns when I pee, I need care. Um, and a doctor saying, well, I don't get you or, or, or want to take care of you, and I'm not going to. And we can and should do better than that. Um, we know that HIV positivity is um, higher in this community, and when you break that down into specific subgroups, uh, trans women of color um, specifically have a significantly higher rate of HIV infectivity. Um, let's see, we have higher rates of insurance related issues and then the key fact that I'll drill down on is 40% of our patients 
uh, or, or members of this community have attempted suicide in their lifetime, about 10 times higher than that of the U.S. population. In our clinic, when we look at the data, 45% of our patients have attempted suicide at some point in their life before they come to see us. That's too high. Um, that doesn't uh, factor in how many people have uh, passive suicidal ideation or uncontrolled depression or anxiety or other untreated mental health needs. And it also doesn't take into account the people who died by suicide. How many trans people or patients could we expect to see? Um, and so one study from the 2010s said in and around central Ohio, there's probably about 70,000 LGB or lesbian, gay, bisexual individuals. And some fuzzy math and statistics um, later, they came out with about a 10 to 1 ratio of LGB to trans people. And so the estimate for central Ohio was that there could be anywhere from you know, one to 10,000 sort of uh, in that logarithm uh, difference uh, trans patients. An updated estimate actually from earlier this year by the same institution says there's probably about uh, 1.6 million uh, trans and uh, gender diverse uh, individuals in the United States. Um, our clinic at Ohio State um, is um, you know, equipped to take care of primary care needs and just create a welcoming home for these individuals. Uh, and we also provide the services uh, listed here, including hormone replacement. Uh, we have a robust relationship with our surgical departments, um, also uh, to offer uh, referrals for gender-affirming surgery. This is uh, members of our care team, and we actually have several others not pictured here. Um, when we talk about a transition, uh, there's the first part of it, which is the social transition. So when patients make possibly changes to their name or um, identity documents or uh, physical uh, outward appearance. So um, tucking uh, or packing um, essentially to remove or create a, a bulge uh, or binding to strap down breasts to create a more masculine appearing chest. Uh, certainly um, facial and other body hair removal um, is going to be important for our, our trans women. Uh, working on vocal changes. So we know that testosterone will cause someone's voice to deepen, but uh, a voice that's been virilized and changed by testosterone through puberty, uh, no amount of estrogen or feminizing medications can undo that. And so vocal coaching and training um, to change the pitch of the voice for trans women is going to be important as well. And then certainly identity documents changing the sex on a driver's license or uh, your passport uh, does actually require a physician participation to sign a form for the BMV or uh, you know write a letter on the patient's behalf when they undergo the legal name and gender change process. And those are things that we in primary care certainly are equipped uh, to help our patients with. And so I will conclude my uh, segment of the presentation by saying uh, let's respect the self-identification of our transgender patients, ask their name, ask their pronouns, and, and then address them as such throughout the rest of the encounter. Certainly, screening and treating concomitant mental health disorders um, while we get these patients into care is going to be crucial. Um, and don't be afraid to get to know and ask questions of your patients in a respectful 
uh, non-intrusive manner. All right, and I'll turn the, the rest of it over to Melissa. Thank you, Drew. Um, so I'll be discussing a little bit about medical gender transition, um, specifically hormone therapy. We'll start with a case from primary care. Um, so this is Rose, who uses she, her pronouns. She's a 22-year-old transgender female for a new primary care visit. Rose has not seen a doctor since childhood. She was assigned male at birth, but has identified as female for as long as she can remember. She socially transitioned at age 18, and her family and friends call her by her preferred name and pronouns. And Rose is here because she would like to medically transition in order to feel more comfortable, avoid being misgendered in public, and have a body which is more congruent. So medical transition, um, as Drew mentioned, is different for each patient, uh, but the majority of patients who responded to the U.S. Transgender Survey either have had hormone therapy or hope to have it in the future. A smaller percentage of patients will have had surgeries, um, and then, of course, there's other interventions. So uh, surgeries can include all of these above. Um, so the top surgery um, speaks about the top half of the body, so um, either mastectomy and chest reconstruction for transgender male patients or breast augmentation for a transgender female. Um, and then bottom surgery is kind of on the bottom half of the body, um, and so it includes the procedures there. Um, sex reassignment is a little bit of an outdated term, but it is still used by insurance companies and um, some patients as well. Um, and that includes um, like genital reconstruction surgery to affirm the patient's identity. We use the criteria for hormone therapy um, based on WPATH, which is first you have to have persistent, well-documented gender dysphoria. You need to have the capacity to make an informed decision, be at the age of consent, and if present, any serious medical or mental health concerns should be well-controlled. And we do use an informed consent model and we discuss the risks and the benefits in a detailed manner with each patient. So for Rose, she has a history of migraines and asthma, as well as anxiety and depression in her teen years, which is now under better control since she socially transitioned. She's on no medications, works at a warehouse. She does smoke one pack per day and drinks socially. Um, no drugs, and she is sexually active with partners who are assigned male at birth. Um, her vital signs and her physical exam were unremarkable. So for Rose, we'll want to get some baseline labs, as you see here, and we'll also recommend any screening tests. So she won't need a mammogram until she's been on hormones for five years, um, but if she needs any other U.S. Preventive Services Task Force screening, we'll recommend those. Also, we do ask our patients their sexual history and offer screening for HIV, hepatitis, and syphilis because the incidence is much higher in this population. So when we start feminizing hormone therapy, there's a lot of different options. Um, and this is all, it changes over time and it's tailored to the patient. So the contraindications would be if a patient had an estrogen-dependent cancer or if they had an active thromboembolic disease. Um, or an active stroke or condition that would cause them to have a stroke. Um, so estradiol oral is used between one to six milligrams daily. 
and titrated to effect. There are two injectable estradiol medications, estradiol valerate and estradiol cypionate. Um, in recent years, there's been some shortages of these medications. In general, patients can be switched from one to the other without any large problems um, unless there's an allergy to the formulation. The estradiol patch delivers transdermal estradiol and there's a range of doses and they're changed either weekly or bi-weekly and placed on the lower abdomen. Most patients who undergo hormone therapy are on some sort of androgen blocking medication, so we often will use spironolactone um, in doses from 100 to 400 milligrams in two divided doses, as well as finasteride, and sometimes we'll use other medications listed here. Many patients will inquire about progesterone and sometimes we'll also add this on um, depending on the patient's preference and their progress with her transition. And the most commonly used are micronized progesterone and medroxyprogesterone. The changes that our patient rose can expect from kind of top to bottom. So first we would expect some skin changes. So the skin will be smoother, softer, usually any acne will clear up. Um, the patient will have some emotional changes, reduced sex drive, which happens pretty much immediately. Then as the months progress between three and six months, we would expect decreased muscle mass. We'd expect some nipple tenderness and breast growth will begin. From six to 12 months, breast buds will continue to develop. There's some body hair changes, which we do counsel our patients that any hair follicle that's already gone through male puberty will not go away. However, the hair can grow in a little bit thinner and less noticeably on the face and other areas of the body, as well as body fat redistribution will occur around six to 12 months and continue to progress. I also counsel patients that it will take about three to five years for complete breast development to be finished. There's many risks of feminizing hormone therapy um, but in general, it's pretty well tolerated. The biggest risks that we counsel our patients on are the risks of DVT and PE and stroke. And we know that the risk increases with age and with years of use. Um, and so that needs to be individualized to the patient according to whether or not they have other risk factors of DVT and stroke. With hormone therapy, the breast growth is permanent, um, which will more approximate the patient's cancer risk to a cisgender female. Um, a decrease in muscle mass can cause strains and sprains. So our patient works at a warehouse, so if she's lifting heavy items, um, she could strain her muscle more easily. And spironolactone can cause other side effects with the kidneys, such as hyperkalemia and AKI, so we'll be monitoring this patient. Um, and estradiol can also cause hypertension, gallstones, migraines, rarely liver issues. Um, there's a star next to infertility because although it can cause permanent infertility, it's not a guarantee. Um, prolactinoma is more of a theoretical risk these days because it has a higher association with ethanol estradiol and cyproterone, which aren't used in the US, but it's still definitely a consideration. Um, and there's also some drug interactions that can be significant with medroxyprogesterone, specifically with anti-epileptic drugs. So Rose met with the smoking cessation educator 
and we started her on some bupropion to assist with quitting. Um, we counseled her on her HIV risk. We offered pre-exposure prophylaxis to help protect her against HIV. Um, she decided to undergo fertility preservation and freezes a sperm sample. Her labs are normal, and so as she starts working on quitting smoking, we'll go ahead and start her on spironolactone, 50 milligrams PO, to help reduce her testosterone, and plan to start estradiol as soon as she's nicotine-free. And we'll often use that approach with our patients um, if they haven't quit smoking yet because they're really eager to undergo transition, um, so it's a way to kind of ease them in. As we go along, we'll want to monitor hormone levels, which in general, the medication is titrated to effect, um, but we'd prefer to have the patient in a um, female range for their hormones. So usually about below 55, and then their estradiol level should be at the mid-cycle peak, which is about 100 to 300 milligrams, but it will depend on the reference values used by each lab. And we'll monitor kidney function and potassium with each dose adjustment of the spironolactone. So an important point here is that the estrogen does not completely prevent pregnancy. So in an individual who was assigned male at birth, if they are on estrogen, it does not mean that they can't cause a pregnancy. So any individual who is engaging in sexual activity that could result in pregnancy, um, they should be talking with their partner about contraception. Um, however, on the, other, on the other hand, it's kind of a double-edged sword because it can cause irreversible infertility. So if they really want a biological family down the line, then we would recommend fertility preservation. So at three months, um, Rose is here for follow-up. She is tolerating her spironolactone well. She's noticed an improvement in her skin, so softer, smoother, no acne. Um, she started having some nipple tenderness and repeat labs were normal and she's quit smoking. Um, so now we opt to start her on estradiol, two milligrams PO and increase her spironolactone to 100 milligrams daily. So I will go over another case. This is a non-binary person. So Erin is 30 years old, uses they, them pronouns, um, and was assigned female at birth with a past medical history of obesity, autism, and fibromyalgia. Erin does not smoke, drink, or use drugs. They work as an animator. They changed their name several years ago and have come out as non-binary to family and partner. Erin still notes significant dysphoria related to their gender and this worsens every month during their menstrual cycle to the point where they experience suicidal ideation. Erin has been researching hormone therapy and brings in a list of goals, including stopping their periods and growing a full beard in order to appear more masculine. So for non-binary patients, any treatment should really be targeted towards the issues that are causing the most dysphoria for the patient. Um, so like we mentioned earlier, sometimes these patients really would do better um, not on hormone therapy or maybe just doing surgery or just doing medications for menstrual suppression. 
Um, so in this case, Aaron's goals are amenorrhea and facial hair, and so it would be appropriate to start them on masculinizing hormones as long as they're okay with the other changes that will take place, um, such as the voice deepening and things like that. So often with our non-binary patients, the regimens are lower dose, but not always. Um, and we really keep it patient-centered and check in with them frequently to see what changes are occurring and adjust regimen to match. So testosterone therapy is a little bit simpler than feminizing hormone therapy um, because there's really a one medication that we use, right, testosterone um, Cypionate or testosterone inenthate are our injectable medications, and those are given in self-injections every seven to 14 days. Topical testosterone is frequently used as well in preparations of 1% or 1.62% gel. And this is applied to the patient's shoulders and upper arms, and we counsel our patients to not have any skin-to-skin -skin contact with family members or children who do not want to masculinize because the patient can actually um, accidentally rub off medication on others. Um, testosterone pellets need to be inserted every three months, um, which is also an option for some patients. And there are several other preparations used for cis males, which um, are FDA approved for cis males, I should say. Um, such as a subcutaneous testosterone inenthate pen, or Zizostead, and then there's a transdermal patch. Um, there's an oral testosterone undecanate and a nasal testosterone gel. And those are all recently approved um, and will probably become more common in this population as prices go down and availability goes up. So for this patient, we'll want to get their baseline CBC. Um, we'll also want to consider checking other levels as appropriate. Some of these patients will come to us and already have signs of masculinization. Um, maybe they were intersex and not diagnosed, or um, it's also frequent, PCOS is frequent in this patient population of um, transgender patients who are assigned female at birth. So we could consider baseline testosterone level in that case. We would also want to offer age-appropriate screening and smoking cessation, which in this case, fortunately, our patient doesn't smoke. We will meet with Aaron for monitoring, so we'll want to continually monitor CBCs. And we're using the male reference value from the lab to determine when it's getting too high. Um, typically, I will treat any hematocrit that's over 50. Um, however, if a patient's kind of on the uptrend, then they should be monitored more frequently, or if they have other risk factors for thromboembolic disease, then the threshold may be different, or we may decide to get expert consultation with the hematologist. Um, any testosterone level that we check should be, we try to get it around the same time in the injection cycle if they're injecting, and we'll typically check at one, three, and six months, and then about every year. And again, with this patient, we will check in frequently, um, maintain a harm reduction approach, and use shared decision-making. So I mentioned harm reduction because some, sometimes patients will actually obtain hormones online or obtain them other places, and so we really want to counsel those patients um, on what they're doing and how to do it safely. So 
the changes that we can expect between the first three months would be skin changes such as increased sweating, um, hot flashes, acne, oily skin, emotional changes can occur, which sometimes it's emotional ability or anger and increased sex drive. Usually amenorrhea occurs during that one to three month period as well, and most of the time that's complete by three to six months. And then as the time progresses, at three to six months, we would expect increased muscle mass, voice changes, and body fat redistribution, so more fat in the abdominal area and less, hips on the, less on the hips and thighs. And then from six to 12 months, facial and body hair growth will continue to progress. Um, body fat redistribution will progress and clitoromegaly and vaginal atrophy will occur as well. And I do counsel our patients that it takes four to five years to have their facial hair completely grow in um, because they're often asking about that. So the risks of testosterone, um, polycetemia is the big one that I just went into, which sometimes we'll treat with either phlebotomy or blood donation if the patient's appropriate to donate blood. Um, acne, we'll wanna be really aggressive and treat this early and often to prevent it from, from getting um, significant for the patient. Um, and then also increased libido, emotional ability. Um, some patients will develop headaches. Um, hypertension is always a concern with anabolic steroids. Infertility can occur, but it's not a guarantee. Um, so that's why there's an asterisk there. Hepatitis is rare with our current preparations but can occur. And male pattern baldness is something that we see pretty frequently, so that's another thing that we like to treat early and often and refer to dermatology as needed. With heart disease, it's more so that their risk begins to approximate a cisgender male of their age and risk factors, so we will check lipid profiles. Um, so they will, they're expected to masculinize um, and their risk is expected to you know, worsen with time. And swelling of the hands and feet can occur. Weight gain usually happens at the beginning of treatment and then it will stabilize typically. Um, and again, these patients we want to use transition as an opportunity to improve their health and so we'll encourage exercise and things like that. So regarding fertility, so testosterone is not a birth control. Any individual who engages in sexual activity could uh, result in a pregnancy and it should be, they should be counseled on the need for contraception. So for these patients, many different forms of contraception are appropriate. So as long as it's acceptable for your patient, then it's acceptable um, to prevent pregnancy. So many of these patients prefer non-hormonal methods and they prefer or they'll prefer progesterone methods. And it's important to counsel your patients that not every method contains estrogen because many patients don't know that when they come to see us. And so once we explain that there's methods available that either don't have hormones or just have progesterone, then they're okay with starting those. And typically they're pretty well tolerated and they tend to have less spotting and unscheduled bleeding with IUDs and implants than since cisgender women do. And so those are appropriate um, options for transgender men. Testosterone is a teratogen, of course. So this, that's one of the reasons why this is so important. So these are some resources 
that I would encourage you to check out. We frequently will reference um, these, including the primary care protocols from UCSF we use pretty frequently. So in closing, gender transition is a unique opportunity for patients. We want them to come to us and improve their overall health. We will tailor the therapy to each individual patient according to their risk factors and goals, as well as cost and ease of use. And we'll use the lowest possible dose in order to achieve the desired effects for the patient. We'll use hormone reference values, which approximate the identified gender, and all patients on hormone therapy should be counseled on reproductive health needs. Thank you so much, Melissa. That was so helpful. I had honestly no idea how many different medical treatment options there were and all the nuances. So to help me get a little bit better idea of dosages, would you be able to compare a typical dose of estrogen, let's give an example, for feminizing hormone therapy compared to something you might prescribe, say, for contraception or uh, postmenopausal hormone replacement? Yeah, so um, for contraception, typically ethanol estradiol is used, and so that's really hard to compare. Um, but some patients will obtain ethanol estradiol online, which is very dangerous, and so we really counsel our patients not to use it. Um, for postmenopausal hormone therapy, typically I would start a postmenopausal patient on you know 0.5 or one milligram estradiol and a transgender patient would take something like two milligrams and then maybe titrate up to four milligrams or six milligrams. Okay. Um, so definitely higher. Got it. And if you are using these higher doses, does that mean the side effects are also greater? So typically when we're using the higher doses, we're choosing those for patients who are young, healthy, active, and of course non-smokers. Um, and then we would recommend a lower dose or we would recommend using transdermal or parenteral estrogen in a patient who is older and maybe has more risk factors. Okay. And Melissa, you called out cancer screenings that should be offered and you mentioned something about maybe doing mammography in those on estrogen. So if the breast tissue does increase on the feminizing hormones, how often do they need to be screened? Is it the same as um, cisgender women? So after they've been on hormones for five years, then it's recommended that they undergo screening at the same screening interval as cisgender women because we now know that the breast tissue that they develop is histologically identical to cisgender breast tissue. Um, so screening is very important. Okay. And have you had any trouble with insurance coverage of both hormones for um, feminizing and masculinizing as well as these cancer screenings? So for hormones, so everything is a prior auth, just about, um, no matter what we sent. Um, however, the hormones themselves are usually relatively affordable with GoodRx coupons. So even a patient who's uninsured um, but is able to obtain the office visit can obtain hormones. For cancer screenings, I have not seen any problems. I know I've read about patients who have had problems, but so far that I know of, they haven't brought that to my attention. Okay, that's good to hear at least. Yeah. And Drew, if the age of consent is a requirement to start medications for transitions, what are some aspects of gender-affirming care that we can provide to our young adults, you know, like social things, um, other treatments? That's a great question. Um, so much of the dysphoria we see in our trans adults comes from the bodies they develop 
after going through a puberty that probably wasn't the right puberty for them. And so we have an opportunity in trans-identified youth to uh, not start uh, cross-gender hormone therapy. They may not be old enough to really understand that or to make that decision um, or have parents that support them in making that decision. But what we can do and what we found is that by um, delaying puberty, so if you think if you have a, a kid who, um, a non-trans youth who undergoes precocious puberty, we have medications to block that and delay it until an appropriate time. We can also take a trans-identified youth and uh, start them on a puberty blocker when they undergo puberty. And that gives them time, uh, a few years, um, uh, to decide, okay, are they um, interested in uh, starting cross-gender hormone therapy as they get older? And if so, you've really prevented a lot of um, changes from uh, their natal puberty that would work against them as an adult. That's awesome. And how long can you prevent puberty for? Is it safe to go several years preventing puberty? There's been actually a lot of evidence and data coming out that does show that it's safe and that when you delay puberty, say from the age of 13, even to uh, into the late teenage years, even to around age 20, that when you rescind those pubertal blockers that um, the effects on uh, bone density and other things um, return to um, normal afterward. Okay, and um, you know, I think that's a, that's a great point, giving them more time to decide, because it sounds like some of the changes from hormone treatment are permanent. What are all the permanent changes that happen from hormones? Sure, so in a masculinizing regimen, um, certainly um, the voice deepening, um, the, you will see some clitoromegaly, um, and those are irreversible changes. To some extent, um, hair um, thickening and growth, certainly facial hair and body hair, um, sometimes will soften if patients choose to go off of testosterone, but many times will remain permanent. Um, and then in a feminizing regimen, um, breast growth is going to be uh, the predominant side effect that uh, once breast tissue grows, it doesn't go away when, if you ever withdraw estrogen therapy. Mm -hmm. And if a provider is not yet comfortable with all of these treatment options, um, where are some resources they can go to get some detailed information or training programs they can use? Absolutely. Um, my favorite resource is uh, the University of California at San Francisco. Uh, and Melissa's slides referenced them. They have a primary care protocol uh, webpage where it goes topic by topic um, and, and really provides a, a intro level, um, provider level discussion about uh, what to ask, what labs to check, what hormones are available and different preparations and dose equivalencies. Uh, and we frequently uh, consult that ourselves. And when we have learners in our clinic with us, we'll refer them uh, to that as well. Okay, great. Are there some um, screening things that we need to be aware of for trans patients? For example, you mentioned certain conditions are more common in trans patients like HIV, uh, depression, and suicide. So, uh, you know, we should be screening all our patients for depression, but are there things that we need to be to be screening our trans patients for at a higher frequency or um, specific to trans patients? Yes, uh, mental health, mental health, mental health. And so uh, checking in, making sure um, that if they need counseling or um, SSRIs or a combination of both as they pursue or undergo their transition is absolutely um, 
fundamental to what we do. Certainly uh, smoking is much higher in this community, although we see smoking cessation rates that are also much higher uh, mm -hmm. because of the motivation our patients have. Uh, those are going to be the most important. And, and then if a patient has an organ that needs screened, we should screen it. Um, and so we don't often you know, jump into intrusive questions about uh, you know, doing a pap smear on a trans man on the first visit, but certainly um, we are there to take care of our patients and to provide um, uh, risk reduction and appropriate age, um, appropriate screening. Mm -hmm. And so it, knowing um, our patients assigned sex at birth and their gender identity um, and then sort of taking an organ inventory to know that if uh, they're at risk for breast cancer or at risk for cervical cancer, um, that we're providing those screenings when appropriate. Mm -hmm. And it, it's awesome. It sounds like you guys are providing such wonderful care for the trans community. And really, if they get in with a primary care doctor who is understanding, then they are really elevating their overall health. So uh, one last question, Melissa. In terms of um, the hormone therapy and its effects on moods, you mentioned sometimes you can have irritability with testosterone. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I think, think women say that a lot, even with birth control or other mm -hmm. um, just hormone treatments for other reasons. Do you see a lot of mood issues with starting hormone therapy? And how do you address that? Um, so it's definitely something that can happen. Um, I've had patients tell me, usually with estrogen, it just makes them feel their emotions more deeply. And so they tell me that their crying threshold kind of goes down, um, but often that's affirming for them and they appreciate that as an effect of the, <laughs> the therapy. Um, sometimes with starting progesterone, um, it can definitely cause some, sometimes it's a calming effect, but sometimes it can also cause some depression. And mm -hmm. so I definitely counsel patients about that. Um, or if they are on injectables and the injection cycle, if they notice a lot of fluctuation with their moods when it's they're due for the next shot, then sometimes we have to reevaluate that as well. Mm -hmm. Wow. Thank you guys so much for coming today. I really appreciate everything that you guys were able to offer. I mean, um, I think that primary care is really taking over for um, what used to be kind of the specialist domain in terms of taking care of transgender patients. So it's so helpful to hear your perspective and all the different things that we can do to help improve the health and lives of our patients. Thank you so much. Thank well, you. let's finish up with a key point from each of our presenters. Drew? All right, we'll make sure to respect the self-identification of your patients. Um, if they use a name and pronouns, follow suit. Uh, and this is absolutely a patient population that is rewarding and humbling to take care of. And Melissa? So my key point is that we should be embracing any um, questions about transition as an opportunity to improve the patient's overall health. Thank you so much both for both of you for coming today and thank you to our audience for tuning in. Our show notes and instructions to receive CME credit and ABIM MOC points are available on our website at ccme.osu.edu. Next week, I'll be joined by Dr. Kate Pang, who will be discussing peripheral vascular disease. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.